Perceptions podcast. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You may talk about your man of Gideon, you may talk about your man of Saul. None like the good old Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Yeah, the walls came tumbling down, down, and the walls came tumbling down. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you that. Okay, before you change the channel, that's the old gospel and now Sunday school song. You guessed it, called Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Jericho was the first city to fall when the ancient Israelites invaded the land of Canaan almost three and a half thousand years ago. Be strong and courageous, the Lord told Joshua in the Old Testament book of Joshua, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. And by inheriting, it really meant killing lots of people who currently live there. So it's quite a strange song to teach kids at Sunday school. And it's no wonder that some grown-ups like uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, get really annoyed and have described the God of the Old Testament as arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, and so on. He's taking aim at the book of Joshua. So how could such violence be condoned, even ordered by God? That's just one of a bunch of questions we've got for you on this season's Q&A episode, where you've called into us or written into us with questions about our recent episodes, and I do my best to give you an answer, some of which are guaranteed to raise more questions. See how that works? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Urban Apologetics, by Eric Mason. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. Here's a question from Naomi, who left an audio message for us on our website. I've just been struck by the really shocking violence, and particularly the violence that's um, ordered by God in actually fully wiping out uh, full communities. And at the same time, one of my teenagers has asked me about Bible violence and how our loving God uh, could have done these things. And I really don't think I've been able to give a very satisfactory answer. And so I need some help. Uh, Please uh, help. Thanks, Naomi. Uh, This is a difficult one. 
I remember reading uh, the violent stories from the book of Joshua to my own son, who's called Joshua, when he was a young boy. And in a few of these stories, I just had to skip over the page, you know, like, um, hey, look at that, Josh, and then (laughs) switch over 10, 15 pages. Uh, This deserves a whole episode. uh, And I know I say that often, uh, and we'll get to all of them, uh, God willing, eventually. So let me just give you a few thoughts, Naomi, that have helped me, and I'm not claiming they're going to help you. First, um, if we're going to take these stories in the Bible as real, we also have to take the explanation given in the Bible as truthful. I say that because you often meet people who are willing to take the stories as proof against the Bible. And then when they hear the reasons the Bible gives for the stories, they say, oh, no, that's just made up. Um, The Old Testament consistently says God used Israel, unworthy Israel, to bring judgment on the supremely unjust and evil communities living in Canaan at that particular time. In fact, back in Genesis, um, there's this weird reference to Israel not being permitted to take the land of Canaan because at that time, the people there were not evil to the point of God intervening. Go and check that out in Genesis 15. In other words, these violent conquests centuries later um, have nothing to do with God playing favorites or being racist or genocidal or anything like that. In fact, several of the most shocking passages in the book of Joshua explicitly begin with God saying he's not playing favorites. He doesn't prefer Israel over the pagans. Um, Israel is just an instrument of divine punishment. It's all about God overthrowing evil in a particular time and place. It's perhaps similar to the way we might have wished that the Allies in World War II had overthrown the Nazis before 1945. Well, God used Israel to overthrow a despicable society. The second thing that's said repeatedly in these accounts is that Israel was much smaller and weaker than the pagan nations they were sent to punish. We mustn't think of them as like the big bully nation, which is, I think, how people imagine it. They're more like little David against giant Goliath. Thirdly, I find it fascinating that the Israelites weren't permitted to continue this violence beyond this particular time and place. It is one of the very strange things about Israel, even at its most powerful centuries later, that it was never an international conquering regime like all the other regimes around them, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and Greeks and Romans and so on. Fourthly, I thank God that he has suspended his temporal judgment of the world out of his mercy. He is delaying judgment until the day of judgment. The destruction of these particular Canaanite communities is for us now a picture of the final judgment. And that's why no Christian has any right to read the Old Testament stories as justification for violence today. Last thing, it's essential, for me at least, to read the whole biblical narrative through the lens of Jesus, through his teaching, suffering, and death on a cross in particular, because that's the key that unlocks everything. Whatever else the Old Testament violence means, it has to be consistent with the Lord who would rather give himself on our behalf than see any of us condemned. This isn't picking and choosing. This is exactly how the Bible asks us to read it. There are loose ends. Yes, there are remaining questions. Uh, It does deserve a whole episode. But Naomi, uh, these are a few of the reasons I'm not giving up on the Old Testament, even though there are bits that still trouble me. Okay, this question is from Jonah, who sent us this. I'm wondering your take on the imprecatory Psalms 
how and when and to a certain degree, maybe if, they should be used within the context of Christian worship. Psalms that speak language such as wanting to take a child's head and dash it against a rock. What do we do with language like that? Before we get to the answer, here's an example of an imprecatory psalm. Thanks, Director Mark. Psalm 5. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Psalm 69. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. Yeah, and there are many more like this, including the scariest one of all, which you quote, Jonah, uh, where the Jews exiled to Babylon cry out against their oppressors, a blessing on him who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks, Psalm 137. These are called imprecatory psalms from the Latin imprecari, which just means to invoke or call down upon. I used to find these psalms really difficult to read, certainly to read out in public, but I don't anymore. So let me try and explain why. Um, The Psalms are, of course, a unique part of the Bible. They're viewed in Judaism and by most of church history, uh, really, through the centuries, as the words God has given us to say back to him in prayer in every conceivable situation. So there are psalms for joy, anxiety, worship, sorrow, praise, doubt, distress, celebration, and even anger. The book of Psalms is the original prayer book, we might say, and the systematic praying of the Psalms, which most Jews and most Christians through history have done, is meant to build a kind of spiritual muscle memory in believers so that they will know the full range of sentiments that they're allowed to yell out to God. So this is the first thing to point out. The imprecatory Psalms are prayers. They're not calls for action. They're not commands. They're not even descriptions of ideals. They weren't taken as ethical norms even in the Jewish tradition. And, of course, in the Christian tradition, we're explicitly forbidden to take revenge. Uh, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and so on. The other thing about the Psalms is that they are full of statements that are allowed to be said in the poetry of prayer, but which aren't remotely true. This is especially the case in another category of psalms known as the complaint psalms, psalms of lament. Um, These relentlessly complain to God about what he's doing in the world. So you read things like, Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? Psalm 10. Or, will you forget me forever, Lord? (laughs) Psalm 13. Um, My God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Uh, Why, Lord, have you forgotten me? Psalm 42. And on and on. The thing is, every writer of the Psalms knew that God doesn't forget. He doesn't forsake his people and so on. But this is how it sometimes feels. And we are allowed, even invited in the book of Psalms, to say this sort of thing to God. We're allowed to express the full range of human emotion. And something similar is going on, I think, with the imprecatory Psalms, where we call down God's judgment on our enemies. 
I take it that God has given the imprecatory psalms for those moments in life and in history when believers have experienced the horrors of injustice. I can easily imagine Jews heading to the gas chambers crying out Psalm 69, Pour out your wrath on them, Lord. Let your fierce anger overtake them. I can imagine Christians during times of obscene persecution praying, O God, declare them guilty. Let their intrigues be their downfall. That's Psalm 5. I admit I struggle to imagine an exact situation where we might feel like we need the words, a blessing on those who seize your babies and dashes them against the rock. But I suppose there have been parents who have watched their own children abused, tortured, massacred, and have felt like saying something like that. The chief rabbi here in Sydney, Rabbi Elton, um, recently sent me a Jewish commentary on the Psalms written during the Second World War. The author was a famous rabbinic scholar named Dr. Abraham Cohen, and he introduced his comments on Psalm 137 by saying, and I'm quoting, Non-Jewish critics writing in comfort and security usually deplore the bitter vindictiveness of the imprecation which ends the psalm. Refugees from the continent, when they return and see how their native city has been turned into masses of rubble by the Germans, will share the mood of the psalmist. I think that's right. My point is, even though these are not actions anyone is permitted to take, these are feelings God doesn't want us to hide or suppress. He wants us to bring them to him in all their shocking rawness. Put another way, the imprecatory psalms create a safe space within the context of prayer alone to express our pure rage in the presence of God. That won't resonate with everyone listening to me, um, but I bet there are a few who have been on the receiving end of the depths of human depravity, and they might be relieved to know that the God of justice invites them to cry out to him and only him for vengeance and vindication. This question is from Noah. I'm so glad he asked it because I have this question too, but I'm going to get Director Mark to read it for us. I've been reading through Deuteronomy recently and have a question about chapter 28, verse 63. It's written that just as the Lord has found great pleasure in causing you to prosper and multiply, the Lord will find pleasure in destroying you. Not sure really how to ask my question, but basically, wait, what? Uh, Firstly, we have some very biblically named listeners today. We went from Naomi to Jonah and now Noah. Are you guys playing a trick on me? It's a conspiracy. (laughs) Are these real names? These are real names. They're not like people pretending to be biblical characters. Actual people. Okay. I reckon this question, though, from Noah, is perfect for a phone a friend. The response to our episode with Dr. George Athos on Between Testaments was fantastic. So I think I'm going to make George our house Old Testament expert. Hello. Hey, George. John here. How you doing? John, how are you? <laughs> good, mate. Good, mate. Um, so this is our phone a friend, and um, we're recording you. So you know, don't don't sprout too many heresies if that's okay. I'll try not to. <laughs> so we've got this um, this guy Noah. He's ri- he's written in, and um, 
he's asking us about Deuteronomy 28.63. And, you know, I know you've memorized that in multiple languages, but you've also written a commentary on Deuteronomy uh, in that yes. excellent series, Reading the Bible Today. So if people want to go out and get that. But um, can you explain why on earth God would, quote, take pleasure in destroying people? And Noah, Noah asks his question. He, he goes, wait, what? <laughs> so over to you, mate. Yeah, well, I can, I can understand his response. Um, it's a pretty confronting verse, I think, if you read it just on its own. Um, but, of course, we need to read it in context. And um, once we do that, I think we get more of a feel for what it's trying to say. Um, one thing we need to realize is we shouldn't be reading the Bible like it's just legislation, you know, flat words with particular set meanings um, as technical terms. The Bible's full of you know, colour and hue and texture and, you know, it uses a lot of rhetoric mm -hmm. in its language and I think this is one of those examples. Um, we, the, the verse uses a few rhetorical devices um, and when when you come across these kinds of devices, you know, a bit like in poetry, um, you're not meant to take it at literal face value. You're meant to feel the effect of the whole. Um, you know, that's pretty much what rhetoric does. Mm. And if you look at the, that particular verse, um, the, the main device that it's using is what we call opposing parallelism. Uh, so the verse has two halves, and each half of the verse is saying the opposite of the other, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, and what it's doing is it's offsetting God's pleasure in bestowing prosperity on Israel for its obedience to his law, uh, remembering that God had given Israel this law with very high ethical standards, um, procedures to follow for maintaining a good, orderly society. And God says to Israel that he will be uh, very pleased to bless them for their obedience to this. And if God gives you directions for creating an orderly society and you follow those directions, well, naturally, blessing is going to follow. Um, but then he says, uh, that if they don't follow those standards, then the result really is going to be a disorderly society, an unethical society that, you know, commits crimes against people, is unpredictable to live in, um, and just becomes an awful place in which to live. And God says that if that happens, then he's not going to sit idly by. You know, God won't, uh, God's inherently just. He's not going to sit by and let people get away with murder. Uh, and so at that point, Israel will have eroded God's determination to bless them, um, and God will have to step in and be just, and he will um, take down their society um, if that's what they end up producing. Um, bearing in mind that God had given Israel this land, uh, and had told them to dismantle the society that was already in there, and that society was itself highly unethical um, and quite unpredictable to live in and, you know, again, a, a generally awful place. And God says, don't be like that. Follow my directions for a good orderly society, and things will be good. Um, but if they disobey and they start mimicking the society that they've taken down, well... Just as God had said to them, dismantle that previous society, God is going to dismantle their society. And it's not as though God takes some kind of perverse pleasure 
in harming people or, you know, that's not what the verse is saying. Um, it's, it's not saying that God has some kind of bloodthirsty streak to him. Um, it's saying in fairly colourful and confronting language, and, you know, you're meant to stop in your tracks as you hear this, mm. that God will be determined to dismantle their society if it is highly unethical. And I think a, perhaps a modern analogy to understand exactly what's going on here is if we think about our own modern-day attitude to, say, the Nazi regime of Germany in World War II. Mm. Um, if I ask you, are you happy that the Nazis were defeated and that the Nazis were taken down? If you answer yes, then you're not saying that you have a bloodthirsty streak and that you have a perverse pleasure in inflicting harm on people. Actually, quite the opposite. You're saying that you stand for justice. You're not a bloodthirsty monster. Um, you're in favour of justice and an orderly, good society that doesn't harm people um, and that you won't sit idly by when you see heinous crimes being committed. And so that's really what God's getting at with this uh, particular verse. Excellent, mate. Uh, so Hebrew rhetoric is the key. Can I get back to you with any other tricky Hebrew rhetoric questions in the future? Absolutely, you can. <laughs> Good on you, mate. And thanks so much for the episode you gave us recently. You're very welcome. See ya. Cheers, John. This one's from Edwin about something he heard in our Religious Freedom episode. That's episode 40. We'll play a tiny bit of that now. I want you, please, to tell my listeners the delightful story uh, told in the appendix of your book of what you found when you personally inspected Jefferson's private collection a few years ago. I knew Jefferson wrote a book called Notes on the State of Virginia, and that was written before he was president, uh, probably in the 1770s, 1780s. And he has a chapter on religion in that book, a small little book. And um, in that chapter in which he talks about religious freedom, he makes the statement that one person's religion cannot harm another. You, if you pick my pocket, that will hurt me. You know, if you hit me or some other way. But if I practice one religion, you practice another religion, that's not going to harm me in any way. And that's what Jefferson writes. Well, it turns out that that's precisely what Tertullian said. Tertullian said, one person's religion neither harms nor hurts another. Well, it's very unlikely. Okay, now here's Director Mark reading Edwin's question about that episode. Hi, I was recently listening to the episode on religious freedom from back in May, specifically the discussion around Tertullian's and Jefferson's assertion that the religion of one person neither harms nor helps another. It occurred to me that the precise opposite of that view is being claimed by many these days against the idea of religious freedom, that religious practice, even simply the presence of religious beliefs by one person, does indeed harm others. We hear it all the time from those in the LGBTI community. Christian beliefs allegedly lead to very real harm to some in our society. 
I know you've spoken before about how Christianity helps others, and you've talked about how harm has been done to others in some periods of history, such as the Crusades. But I wonder, does one person's religion harm another? This is a fair question, Edwin. Um, First, on the technical point, uh, Tertullian's argument was that religion is primarily mental and communal. It isn't a thing of the state. Uh, So pagan religion wouldn't harm Christians, he's saying, if state officials just stop trying to make Christians participate in pagan sacrifice. Do your own worship, by all means, but don't impose it on us. That's his thought. In the same way, a Christian's religion, so long as it's not imposed on anyone else, doesn't harm anyone. That's the sense in which he made that famous statement about religion uh, of one person not harming another. Okay, but your more difficult and uh, pertinent question is whether the traditional Christian view of sex is harmful to the LGBTI community. I guess I need to say yes uh, and maybe not. I'd say that the behaviours of traditional Christians certainly can harm. If we insist on conversion therapies, these can do great harm. There's quite a bit of research on this now. It is harmful to attempt to make someone who has same-sex attraction to feel opposite-sex attraction. It can be harmful anyway. Other ways Christians can harm is by their language. Uh, There is such a bad history of Christians bullying the LGBTI community that nowadays a harsh or smug word about this topic can be deeply hurtful to the point of harm. Okay, uh, but do I think the traditional Christian view of sex itself is harmful? Uh, I guess that's you know the real question. I don't. Um, this is where I'd agree with Tertullian that where ideas aren't imposed on others who don't share the ideas, one's religion does not harm another. Now, it's sometimes pointed out that Serious social studies um, have revealed that the LGBTI community still experiences homophobic mistreatment and insult, and that this increases depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation in that community. But the thing is, homophobic mistreatment and insult are absolutely forbidden to Christians. To know whether the traditional view itself is harmful, we surely would have to see evidence of harm in contexts where Christians hold the traditional Christian view of sex and nonetheless show respect and friendship toward gay and lesbian friends. There aren't any such studies, um, but there probably should be. So my question is, would a gay man, for example, be harmed if he had Christian friends who were open about their disagreement over the nature of sex and yet honoured and cared for him all the same? I doubt it. When Christians had power and imposed their sexual ethics on others, I think that was harmful, and there's probably something of a hangover effect that that remains. But as the Christian view becomes a weird minority view, as it has on all sorts of other issues, and as Christians carry themselves with gentleness and respect, I just don't think the harm argument will have currency. You realize, of course, that we can never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Ha! I love When Harry Met Sally, and might just go watch it again after this. But before I do, here's Director Mark reading our next question from Paul. 
Love the podcast. Listen as I walk early in the morning. It's a blessing. Just finished the one on friendship. So good. A question that dropped out of that discussion. Would you be willing to talk about friendship between people of the opposite sex? Said differently, can a man and woman not married have the sort of friendship you're describing? Thanks, Paul. Paul, it's interesting that you had this question following the episode because so did I. Um, And I think I want to say yes, but to speak personally, um, I have had two intimate friendships with women, um, much older women. One was the woman who led me to Christ when I was a teenager, and I stayed in touch with her regularly until her death in 2017. I could share anything with that woman. The other was a French academic who became a Christian through a lovely friendship with our whole family. I had a profound um, intellectual and spiritual connection with her, and I miss her dearly. I'll admit I don't really have intimate friendships with women my own age or younger, except for what you might call uh, couple friendships, where I'm really close to the wives of close mates. I've got quite a few of those friendships. I guess the one exception is um, Karen, the wife of my best mate, Ben, who recently died. We're very close, and I can't imagine us ever not being profound friends. So I'm sure it's possible to have intimate friendships across the sexes. So I uh, respectfully disagree with the when Harry met Sally uh, policy. But there's a part of what they say there that is real. Um... I'm not sure if this is a function of our sexualized culture, uh, and so far from an ideal, or perhaps it's just that most of us are unfailingly sexual beings, but I do feel there is always a potential of a sexual relationship developing out of a friendly intimacy. And I reckon that's something that at least needs to be pondered very carefully and honestly. And secondly, and relatedly, I reckon it's unlikely you can sustain intimate friendships with people of the opposite sex once you're married, Um, because the potential for jealousy is real. Um, The potential for misunderstanding from those around you is also real. I could be wrong uh, in all of that, Um, but these are pretty much all the thoughts I have on the topic. Don't go away because we've got heaps more questions to ask John, including what's with the virgin birth, similarities between stories like Noah's Ark and other creation stories, and what happens if Jesus just doesn't exist. But first, this break. Do you like me in my host role? I do. Yeah. This episode of Underceptions is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Urban Apologetics, by Eric Mason. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. What is your book about? Thank you for having me. My book is about the restoration of Black dignity through the gospel. There are things that have been put in place that still uh, leans against Black people. And that's not, we're not talking about victim mentality, we're just talking about stats and reality. And because of that, that's affected even in the church. And so that, that the church was a part of the leading of the dignity and destruction of Black people. And so in light of that, we're saying that uh, it's our responsibility to be restorers of dignity, right? Uh, how, do, how do we do mercy, faithfulness, and justice in how things are happening in this country 
and in really in the world. And so that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Who should read your book? I, I really want the church to pick it up. Number one, the church, particularly black Christians and white Christians. Um, that that's that's a key for me. Um, I think the book gives context, particularly for people who are struggling with Christianity because of this, right? They're white and black Christians struggling with it because of this. Um, so, you know, and so, and, and people who are non-Christian who are struggling with it. Unity affects everything. You know, how many times did the Bible say, be of the same mind? We have to work out our unity. And I think that's really what this is. Christianity is, it needs to be re globally rebranded, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and, and one of the, one, in, in many facets, but one of the ways is unity. I, 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 don't, I don't think people view us as loving one another. We need to be honest with where we failed and begin to re-envision what Christ wanted us uh, to reflect in relation to be, uh, you know, Ephesians 4 says, may we be built up into one new man in him. And in order to do that, we don't deny our differences. We celebrate our differences, but we gather also around the unifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross that brought us together and his resurrection as well. Dr. Eric Mason, thank you so much. This book is all about debunking myths about the Christian faith that have taken hold in the African-American context, but which also have relevance to other minority communities around the world. Eric's call for unity is so important, and he's collected a list of contributors for this book that offer multiple perspectives and practical applications that will help those who have had real trouble accepting Jesus because of the actions of a church that has struggled with racism for generations. Urban Apologetics by Eric Mason is available now on Amazon. There are over 3 million people living in slavery in Pakistan. The practice of bonded slavery is widespread. When families borrow money from their employer to pay for essentials, often in times of crisis, and then they spend years, sometimes decades, paying it off by working as a slave. Brick kilns are the primary place you'll find these indebted families in Pakistan, caked in mud and working for as little as $4 a day. 70% of the bonded labourers in Pakistan are children. Anglican Aid is trying to break this cycle of poverty in Pakistan, helping families who have spent generations in bonded labour to break free. This Christmas, they have partnered with Miracle School Ministries in Lahore, the capital of Pakistan's Punjab province, to offer free quality education to 800 children enslaved in the local brick kiln. Miracle has set up a sewing facility to provide alternative employment for women in particular, increasing how much they can earn and teaching a marketable skill that might see their families get out of the brick kilns for good. This Christmas, please consider these guys I trust, Anglican Aid, as they continue to work to establish long-term assistance for women and their families. Just go to anglicanaid.org.au, anglicanaid.org.au org.au to give today. Nausea and fainting spell solved. You're pregnant. <laughs> I'm 
I'm sorry, but she's just not pregnant. No, I'm not pregnant. Uh, we tested your urine. Trust me, the test is wrong. Uh, false negatives are frequent. False positives are rare. Jane, did you wear Michael? No, we didn't. And it may be rare, but it happened because I'm a virgin. A virgin? Uh, maybe we should talk in private. That's a clip from the TV show Jane the Virgin from the very first episode, actually, when Jane finds out that she's pregnant. This is not exactly a virginal conception. Jane has been accidentally impregnated via artificial insemination. Producer Kaylee says Jane the Virgin is really fun and really clever. I haven't seen it, uh, which probably won't come as a surprise to regular listeners. and uh, That would get in the way of me watching The West Wing over and over. But it's a fun intro to our next question. Director Mark. Terry asks... So I have a dilemma. If Christianity is built on the fundamental premise of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus was not conceived by God, does that not challenge the beliefs of Christians? Can you still be a Christian and accept that Jesus was conceived naturally? How do you do this? The straight answer is yes. You can certainly be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth, preferring to think of Jesus as born in the normal way. Um, Certainly the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't depend on the virgin birth. In fact, one of the really striking things about the two mentions of the virgin birth in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, is that nothing is made of it, theologically. It's presented as a miraculous work of God, and so it's significant for that reason. But it's not like either gospel writer presents it as the foundation of, say, the divinity of Christ or the purity of Jesus the man or anything like that. But that might be a reason to believe it. (laughs) There is no grand theological motivation for inventing the story in the first place. Matthew and Luke report it as just something amazing that happened. Why did they do so? Well, I think it's because that's the tradition that was passed down from the time of Mary to the time of the Gospels. And here's the other thing that should give skeptics uh, pause. Matthew and Luke are usually regarded by scholars as written independently of each other. And yet they both report, in quite different ways actually, that Mary conceived Jesus without having sexual intercourse with Joseph. So the only real bar to belief in the virgin birth is the problem of miracles. Presumably, Terry, you do believe miracles are possible? I mean, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate miracle, and it is a deal-breaker for the Christian faith. Everything hangs on the reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. So if you believe in the resurrection, why would you dispute the virgin birth? Is a virginal conception harder for God to pull off than resurrection from the dead? Or what about original creation, right? I mean, God is the creator of all things. C.S. Lewis said years ago, and I'm going to quote him here, I can understand the man who denies the miraculous altogether, but what is one to make of people who admit some miracles but deny the virgin birth? Is it that for all their lip service to the laws of nature, there is only one law of nature, the law of sex, that they really believe? It's a bit cheeky, but it makes the point. We got a question from Rob asking us to do an episode on the similarity between some of the Old Testament stories and other stories in ancient cultures like Noah's Ark. 
So I've made it into a question for you, though perhaps we will do a whole episode on this in the future too. Also, Rob obviously listened to episode 47, called Everyday Sacred, where you shared some of your morning tea ritual. He reckons you'll get used to tea without sugar, but you've got to give it six weeks. Well, Rob, I don't know about your sugar suggestion. I'll admit that since I saw your question come in, I have uh, slightly cut back on the sugar from one to three quarters. Uh, So I'll let you know if I can go all the way. You're Um, so susceptible to people's suggestions. See, I just love my peeps, right? Um, Anyway, uh, Noah's Ark. Okay, Noah's Ark. Uh, Yes, that would make a great episode. Uh, I'm certain to lose my friends on both sides uh, with that episode. Um, Basically, I think there was a real catastrophic flood in the ancient Near East, and it's told in the Bible as a kind of parable. So sceptics think I'm nuts for thinking there was some history to it, and some of my Christian faithful friends uh, think I'm a bit dodgy for reading Genesis 6 to 9 as mm, sort of like a parable. Obviously, in my effort to please everyone, I end up pleasing no one. But you touch on a really interesting point that is widely discussed in Old Testament scholarship. Very similar flood stories are told in different cultures. This is one of the reasons I think there really was a widespread monumental flood. It was remembered and retold in prehistoric oral traditions. The Babylonians, for example, had a very ancient flood story. It appears in what is known as the Epic of Atrahasis, dating to about 500 years before Moses. And perhaps the best known version, uh, written around the time of Moses, is the Gilgamesh Epic, uh, also from the Babylonians. And in both the Babylonian and biblical stories, the flood is planned by the gods or God. A hero and his companions um, are rescued in a big boat. When the flood begins to recede, the boat lands on a mountain. And perhaps most tellingly, both traditions tell of sending a bird to test if there's dry land. When we do an episode on it, I'll drill down to all the very fine details. It's really quite fun. Now, people often make the mistake of criticising the Bible for simply borrowing Uh, an older pagan story. Or if they're Christians, they worry about the Bible just simply copying pagan ideas. But it seems obvious to me that Genesis is doing something similar here to what it does in chapter 1, where there are certain key comparisons between the Bible and pagan creation stories. But the comparisons aren't copying. They are deliberate critique. The Bible borrows some of the forms and motifs of pagan creation stories precisely to draw attention to the unique theological claims of the Jewish people, namely that there's one God, not many, that creation is good and orderly, not capricious, and humanity isn't an afterthought, as is often the case in pagan stories, but the very climax. And I think it's similar here in the flood story. The author of Genesis takes a well-known universal saga and thoroughly Hebraizes it, turns it into a proclamation of the power of the one true God to judge and to save humanity. We find plenty of other examples of this in the Bible, where biblical writers take pagan concepts and language and turns them on their heads. You especially see this in the Psalms, where the songs of Israel portray God as holding court among the gods. 
only to discover that the gods actually are nothing, or where God is described as the, quote, rider on the clouds, which everyone knew was an epithet given to the pagan god Baal. We should never fret about parallels between the Bible and surrounding non-biblical cultures. There is never simple borrowing. Half the time, the Bible is saying, hey, the surrounding nations got this right, but here's the fulfillment. And the other half of the time, the Bible is saying, here is where those pagan nations got things completely wrong. And here's the truth. This question is from John. I'm having a wonderful discussion with my neighbour and we're hitting a stalemate in a nice way. He cannot get past that he personally never had the choice or option to be in the Garden of Eden, you know, with Adam and Eve, and have the right to choose the fruit or not. He gets there is a choice now in Jesus, but the context of his choice is within a pretty harsh and painful world. Who knows what he may have chosen in a perfect world? Okay, so here's another example where you want me to lose friends and distance people. Um, We've done quite a bit on Genesis 1 to 3 in previous episodes. Uh, Which one, Producer Kaylee? I know you've memorised them all. You know, the one with um, Professor Jack Collins. What number was that and what was it called? Six days. Oh. Episode 14. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. Okay, so go check that out. Um, But for now, here's the briefest answer I might uh, give to your friend. The main point of Genesis 3 isn't how the world came to be the way it is. The main point is that this is what humanity is always like uh, when it doesn't depend on God. Now, don't get me wrong, I do believe there was a historic fall, a moment when the first human beings in relationship with God defied him. But I don't think that's the main purpose of Genesis 3. The very word Adam means human. And this is the human story. Adam was placed in a garden and given a commandment as a kind of picture of Israel placed in the promised land and given a law. And just as Israel was expelled from its land for disobeying the law, so Adam was expelled from the garden and its blessing through disobedience. So the story is first and foremost representative, we might say. And I'd say to your mate, you also have a choice in this moment. The Garden of Eden plays out in your life here and now. Will you depend on God and his ways and enjoy his blessing? Or will you reject him and find yourself expelled? Therese has a question coming from our Between Testaments episode. That's episode 54. In that episode, we made a few references to the world. For example, when we said the Babylonian Empire dominated the world. But Therese is wondering, isn't that just the Middle East? Here's Director Mark reading some more of Therese's question. Does the world in this context mean just the world that was known to the authors of the historical documents we source history from? If that's the case, saying the world sounds a little arrogant, as if the Middle East in this period was the only context where anything of importance actually happened. So Therese is asking whether God was doing anything in history outside of the Middle East and surrounding countries. Why was the influence of the Old Testament just confined to one geographical region? Okay, on the first part of your question, I think you've just caught me out as being very sloppy, or at least completely biased to ancient Near Eastern and Middle Eastern history. An expression like dominated the world really just means the world that I know something about. 
pathetic, really. Your more tricky question is about what God was doing beyond the Middle East, beyond the biblical story. And my answer is, I don't precisely know, but there are two hints in Scripture that something was going on. Um, First, there's that really weird story in Genesis uh, in the Old Testament where Abraham has been called by God, right, out of all the pagan nations to form a new people, a new religion that will be Israel. And then we're told in Genesis 14, quote, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So let's ponder this. Here is a king from a foreign nation who already has a relationship with God, even though he has nothing to do with Abraham. In fact, he's more than that. He's called a priest of God most high. And Abraham gives him a tithe, a 10% offering, just like centuries later, Jews would give a 10% offering to their own priests. For me, this is a reminder really early in the biblical story that the biblical story itself is not the sum total of all that God is doing amongst the nations. There's another hint, and it's in the New Testament. Uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17 is preaching to pagans in Athens, and he says in the middle of that speech, God marked out the times and places of all the nations so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then he says, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul even goes further and he cites two pagan authors. He quotes Epimenides from 500 BC saying, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then Paul quotes a hymn to Zeus written by the poet Aratus from the 200s BC when he says, we are God's offspring. These are tantalizing passages and I don't want to make too much of them, but they are clearly saying that God has arranged things in history so that people even beyond the reach of his covenant will have some true knowledge of him. Beyond that, we can't really say much based on the Bible. This question is from Pui Chung, who says that she is Hong Kong Chinese and grew up under both Western and Chinese cultures with a deep appreciation of ancient Chinese philosophy and ethics. Her question is about your interview with Rebecca McLaughlin for episode 18 called Confronting Christianity. McLaughlin claims that the West owes Christianity for its moral framework and that atheists borrow from the Christian framework as they do not have a basis upon which to build one. She also claims that modern-day science is a product of Christianity because of the Christian's belief that the universe is orderly and can be studied, having been created by God who sets out the laws for nature. My question is this. How do you explain the existence of a moral framework such as that espoused by Confucius in ancient China and the astronomical and other scientific achievements of the ancient Chinese scholars when clearly Christianity had not had an impact at that time? Thanks so much for this one. It's really thoughtful. The first thing to say is do please check out our recent episode on Chinese Jesus. Um, One of our guests, Ai Ching, had some really lovely insights into the rich moral and spiritual frameworks in China uh, from ancient times. As for your specific question, 
about moral frameworks and scientific achievements outside of the Judeo-Christian cultures, let me make uh, a comment about each in turn, the morality and science. The claim isn't that there was no morality in China or elsewhere. I mean, of course there was. Um, every culture that has ever existed has had social norms, um, moral programs. And this is true of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and of course the teachings of Confucius. He had a strong moral program of courtesy, moderation, respect, tradition, and so on. Rebecca McLaughlin's claim, and I join her in this, is that the specific moral outlook of the West derived from Judaism and Christianity, what we call the Judeo-Christian tradition. And here I'd include things like the equal and inestimable value of every human being and the emphasis on love as the central ethical principle. Um, these two ideas were not taught by Confucius. Um, they were not taught in Greece or Rome. They came into the West through the influence of Jesus first and Paul, and then church law as it played out in the medieval period. The episode we did last season with Tom Holland called Christian Revolution lays this out in lovely detail. Okay, so what about science? Now, it's true that numerous cultures from ancient Rome through to China developed brilliant technologies, including mapping the stars in quite precise ways. Um, these were mostly born out of the human curiosity uh, that is universal, and of course, the political and military necessities of life. And they're pretty good motivators for advancing knowledge of the physical world. So in this sense, basic science isn't uncommon throughout uh, different cultures. But something very different and significant happened in Europe alone in the late medieval and early modern period. There was a massive society-wide movement we call the scientific revolution. It's such a dramatic thing that historians of science have been puzzling for decades about what were the specific conditions in Europe in this period that created this massive rapid increase in scientific knowledge. Um, curiosity and necessity were, of course, factors, just as they were everywhere, really. Um, but there are at least three ideas that historians in the literature feel were peculiar to the Christian West and seem to have provided a fertile intellectual ground for the scientific revolution. So although I'm going on a bit longer than producer Kaylee and director Mark want me to, let me uh, outline the, the three things that, um, that people are talking about. First is the simple idea that the physical world derives from one rational mind, from the one God. And so there must be a rational order and unity in physical things. This is virtually the first premise of science itself, that the world is rational. It operates according to rational principles and that it's a unity. The laws are the same here on earth as they are in the heavens. The second idea is what you might call a wisdom theology approach to knowledge. This basically says that whatever you discover about the world is discovering more about the mind of the creator. And so studying the world, as you do in science, isn't just curiosity or military necessity. It is an act of worship. And that is a powerful motivator. And the motivation is very clearly expressed in the writings of the very first scientists. They even spoke of God's two books, the Bible and the physical world. 
The third idea is a bit weird when you first hear it, but there's actually quite a bit of scholarship around it. Historians of science like Peter Harrison, who was formerly at Oxford University and now at the University of Queensland, have shown how the scientific revolution followed a revival of Augustinian theology throughout Europe. Now, Augustinian theology taught, among many other things, that the human mind, for all its brilliance, is fallen through sin and through our estrangement from the Creator. We share in the rational capacities of God, but in a diminished way. Now, what this meant was that intellectuals studying the physical world, who were influenced by Augustinian theology, knew that there was a very real risk their observations and intuitions about the universe were liable to mistake. And so what was needed were methods of double-checking, of verification to protect against our fallen judgments. This provided the intellectual context in which the first scientists insisted on the methodology of experimentation, where our rational insights into the physical world could be tested. And so was born what we now call the experimental method, or empirical science. This isn't just theoretical speculation. Uh, Peter Harrison has laid this out in beautiful detail from all the primary source evidence we have from the first scientists, that this is how they really thought about these things. So, of course, Christianity didn't invent morality and science out of nothing, but it did create conditions in which particular moral themes came to prominence and particular intellectual approaches to the physical world came to dominate our world. John's done this to our guests a few times in the last season, so we're going to fire a few quick questions at him and see how quickly he can answer. Are you ready? Hi, John. My name's Georgia. I was just wondering, why do we call it the Bible? Excellent question, Georgia. Now, I'd like to give you a 10-minute answer because I think it's a very cool question, but producer Kaylee, director Mark, say, no, you've got 30 seconds. Okay, so here, here it is. The English word Bible right, just comes from the Greek word biblos, which means book. So when we say Bible, we're really just saying the book, right? This book is the book. It's the book of books. That's why. Hi, I'm Nina and I'm seven. I want to know if Jesus is really real and what if he's not? Nina, 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 I meant to be quick here too, but um, what a cool name you have, first off. Did you know there was an amazing woman in the early church called Nina? Hardly anyone knows about her, but you really should know about her. She was a slave who served the queen of a non-Christian country called Lazika. We now call it Georgia, uh, sort of in between Turkey and Russia. Nina told the queen about Jesus and convinced her to be a Christian. And then the king became a Christian. And then loads of people throughout Lazika became Christians. And then Nina was set free. And when churches were established in that country, you know what she did? She went out and preached Jesus to other lands as well. Nina was awesome. Okay, that wasn't your question. Is Jesus real? And what if he's not? Well, yes, Jesus is real. Um, We have excellent evidence from Christian and non-Christian writings to prove that the Jesus of the Gospels really is a real figure. He lived, he healed, he taught, he died, and he rose again. He is real. What if he's not? Well, it would mean we have no way of knowing our sins are forgiven, because that's why he died, so that we could be forgiven. And we would have no one in history who broke through death by rising again, so we wouldn't know about eternal life. But Jesus is real. 
So we know forgiveness and we know eternal life. That's what inspired the amazing ancient Nina. And I hope it inspires you too. This one from an anonymous listener. How do we explain the brokenness of the world before humans existed? You know, like the death of Neanderthals, animal extinction, earthquakes and other natural disasters. You want this in rapid fire, honestly, guys? Yeah, you got to keep it hard. Uh, okay, so here's the ridiculously quick answer. Not as quick as these guys want, but you know, quicker than I want. Um, I think it's clear that there was death and destruction prior to the rise of Homo sapiens. It is everywhere in our fossil record. And I come from the Augustinian school of thought from St. Augustine back in the fifth century, who insisted that when we have genuine facts about the world that contradict our simple reading of scripture, it's likely that our reading of scripture is wrong or too simple. The scripture is true, Augustine said, but our interpretation might be wrong. So. I think we can read the Genesis 3 story as meaning that God promised to protect the first human beings in relationship with him from the surrounding decay that was already there. Death and destruction wouldn't touch them so long as they relied on him, so long as they ate regularly from the tree of life. Which, by the way, is a hint in the text that humans were not immortal by nature. They were mortal and needed to eat from the tree of life regularly. And they had to make sure they didn't presume to determine good and evil for themselves, which is what I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes. But when these human beings rejected God, they themselves fell under the decay that is already in nature. And of course, this perfectly parallels God's promise to Israel in the promised land and what happened when they rejected God and were expelled from the land. Harry Potter. The boy who lived. Come to die. I think that's our first Harry Potter reference on this podcast. Five seasons in. Amazing. That's from the epic final movie of the Harry Potter franchise, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which our last question for this Q&A episode relates to. It's a great one for director Mark to read, given his obsession slash occupation with movies. Black Widow, Harry Potter, Neo from The Matrix, a film John hasn't seen, Harry Stamper, from Armageddon, yet another film John hasn't seen. As a Christian, when characters in movies sacrifice themselves for the greater good or survival of mankind, I think of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But did this concept originate from Christianity? Are there examples of this in earlier religions or mythology? Uh, Just before we get to that, have you seen all of the Harry Potter movies, J.D.? So, Uh, do you know who Harry Potter is? No, come on. (laughs) 
No, Seth, I, I mean, want an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know who Harry Potter is. Okay. Uh, have I seen a movie? Um, I, I have. I think I have walked into uh, the room as my family have, have watched the movies um, in every movie uh, of Harry Potter. I have walked through the room. Yeah. Better than some. Okay. Well, yeah, sacrifice is everywhere in human cultures. At the most basic level, um, every military culture, from the ancient Greeks through to the Vikings, praised those who sacrificed their lives in battle for their land and for their loved ones. So personal sacrifice is almost universally admired. And then there are the sacrifices of the various religions. Almost all religions had sacrifices of atonement, not just the ancient Jews with their animal sacrificial system in the temple, but the ancient Greeks and Romans had goat and bull sacrifices. The ancient Chinese and the later Vikings also practiced sacrifice, as did the original traditions in Hinduism. Um, the Vedas describe the great horse sacrifice. So sacrifice in itself isn't unique to Christianity. It seems to be a near universal assumption in the world that we have wronged the gods, that there's something wrong with us, and that we need to atone for ourselves and appease the gods. It's an interesting insight into very basic human psychology. Um, guilt and atonement seem built in. The unique thing in Christianity, then, isn't the notion of sacrifice, but the claim that we can't atone for our own wrongs through our own sacrifice. The stunning message of the gospel is that God himself entered the world, lived the life we could never live, and then offered up that perfect life in sacrifice to atone for our wrongdoings. That is unique. This is simultaneously the fulfillment of the universal human longing to atone for guilt, and it's a correction of it. We're right to think we need remedy. We're wrong to think we can remedy ourselves. Guilt is our own for sure, but atonement and salvation are pure gift. Can I perhaps close by quoting from the new book by my mate Ben Shaw? He died just a couple of weeks after this came out, but his words continue on. The book is called Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity, and it's doing incredibly well, apparently. Anyway, here's a bit of what he wrote that touches on Lizzie Ann's question. Ben writes, On Saturday morning, 29 July 2006, a small plane carrying a group of skydivers took off from an airport near St. Louis in the US state of Missouri. On board were eight people, including Kimberly Deer, a 21-year-old woman from Melbourne, Australia. She had travelled to America to help on a summer camp for children with various disabilities, and now at the end of the trip, she and a friend decided to fulfil a lifelong dream to go skydiving. They were each paired with a skydiving instructor who would jump out of the plane in tandem with them. Kimberly was buddied up with Robert Cook, an experienced instructor who had successfully completed around 1,700 jumps. Soon after takeoff, the plane got into trouble. Witnesses on the ground said they heard a loud bang and could see smoke coming from the plane's engine. On board, excitement turned to terror. Robert Cook's experience and training quickly kicked in. He calmly turned to Kimberly and told her that the plane was going to crash 
and that she should lie on top of him. He told her that he would cradle her in his arms and absorb the impact in his own body as the plane hit the ground. So through the tears, Kimberly did as Robert instructed and clung onto this man whom she'd only met that morning, hoping her life would be spared. Seconds later, the plane crashed in an urban area, narrowly missing a number of houses. Robert died instantly. Kimberly survived. She suffered temporary spinal injuries, a broken pelvis, and a range of other minor injuries. But Robert's body had cushioned the impact enough to save Kimberly's life at the expense of his own. In 2008, Robert Cook was posthumously awarded the Star of Courage, Australia's second highest award for bravery. It's stories like that, Ben continues, that remind me of the significance of the death of Christ. The central claim of Christianity and of Jesus himself is that he came to rescue us by throwing himself in harm's way. Similar to Robert Cook, he sacrificed his own life, but to cushion us from eternal death. The Bible talks unblushingly about our guilt and God's anger, but it doesn't stop there. It also talks about God's amazing grace. God is graciously willing to forgive each and every one of us and all at his own expense. He was willing to come in the person of Christ and on that Roman cross bear the consequences of all our wrongdoing and shame. The message of Christianity is that God came in human form to be a substitute for us. On the cross, all our debt, punishment and shame was set upon Christ, allowing us to be fully exempt. Christ came to cushion the blow that we all really deserve. He laid down his own life to save ours. Not just one life for another, but his life for any of us who are willing to be cushioned by him. You can help us get the truth out by heading to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating and a review. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Undeceptions. You can grab your Undeceptions t-shirt and wear it proudly. Just go to Undeceptions.com forward slash shop. And if you really like us, uh, why not consider becoming a regular show sponsor via the donate button on our website? I've said before, it costs us about $3,000 to produce each episode. We're about two thirds of the way to covering that. And if uh, you want to see us continue and thrive and grow, as we really hope to do, uh, please go to undeceptions.com and click the donate button. While you're there, feel free to send us another question. I'm sure I've raised many questions in this Q&A episode. Next episode, we're only tackling one of the world's biggest problems, the refugee crisis. We've got an international politics prof, a theologian, and a Syrian refugee with quite a story to tell. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by the questionable Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee.
Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. Honestly, you think I couldn't see the question all coming? <laughs> <laughs> Undeceptions Podcast. <laughs>